Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Yardena Azman, here with my friend and Chavruta, Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masech Pesachim, daf Chafvav, 26. So our daf is in the middle of a discussion, which we started yesterday, which was the concept of getting benefit from something, even if you didn't intend to get benefit from it. And Abai wants to bring a proof for his particular opinion. And he quotes um, the following b'risa. Right, Amar by Mina Amina Le, right? Where do I know my opinion from? Titania. And here's Brysa. Amr and sorry, and Abai's opinion is is that if it's unintentional, you can get some benefit. Um Amru Alav Al Rabad Yochanan Ben Zakai, Shaya Yoshev Bitsilo Shell Hechal, the Doresh Kohayom Kulo, Baha Hacha Deloev Shar, Umikevan Vishare. So they said about Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakai that he would sit in the street in the shade of the sanctuary. And he would darshan, he would teach. And the idea being the Mepharshim explained is so that since he was teaching outside and was there all day, large numbers of people could come and hear him. And so the issue here is, is that he's basically using the wall of the Beit HaMikdash, the wall of the sanctuary uh, for shade. So in a way he's using it, in a way he's benefiting from it. And we know that you're not really allowed to benefit from something that's holy, um, that's Hegdeh. So he's benef- benefiting from it in a way that it's, not intended or is unusual, right? He just happens where he's sitting, it's casting shade. Um, and what do they say here? Right? Here it's showing he actually must have intended to derive benefit, and yet it was it was permitted. I mean, apparently that the idea is, is that, you know, everybody allowed, but he said anything that he wasn't allowed to do this. Now, I, I'm going to give a very literary read to this. I... I Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is one of my favorite Tanaim. And obviously he's most famous for the famous story, which we'll get to in Gittin, uh, where he gives away Yerushalayim. Um, but there's something, I don't know, so beautiful to me about the idea of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. I know this is really meant literally, but, you know, that he's like sitting in the shade of the Heichal and teaching, right? So that all the whole day, because he's really sort of that bridge from temple Yerushalayim-centric Judaism to Yavna B'chachmeha, right? He moves the Sanhedrin. He moves the center of learning to Yavna. And just this notion of him being in the shadow of it, I just thought there's something very beautiful about this text. I don't want to read it only from a literary point of, you know, literally. I, I want to make it mean something a little bit more. Maybe that's too much. I don't know what you think, Anne. <laughs> Um, I think that you can do it if you want, meaning <laughs> I, I don't mean that in a, in a demeaning kind of way. I think that there's something very lovely at hearing your interpretation of this. I'm not sure that I would say it's shot. It's not the shot, but anyhow, I, I just thought that was very nice. Anyhow, the Gemara goes on and says, Rabba Amar, right? Rabba says, Shani Heichal Dilituho Asui, right? And so Rabba says, no, the Heichal is actually different. Because it wasn't constructed for its outside walls, it's constructed for its inside walls. So what you're not allowed to get uh, benefit from is the inside wall, but you can the outside wall. It's like, well, that just happens to be the outside wall, and that's why it could be different, and that's why you could actually sit in its shade. And then they go on and say the following, Amaraba, Mina Aminale, right? How do I know this? Detanya, and he quotes now another Brysa. Right, 
So he quotes a very interesting Brysa. This also was interesting to me because one of my children actually recently asked me this question, um, and um, which was basically that there were openings, right, in the Aliyat, in the lot of the Kaddish Kadoshim, where they would lower the, the skilled workers, the artisans in containers inside the actual Kaddish Kadoshim itself so that their eyes wouldn't actually, you know, look on it, right? But this way they could do repairs and they could do uh, renovations, right? And I just thought this was like, so one of my kids actually asked me the other day, which he was like, how did they, we were talking about Tuman Tower and the cases of Sheretz, right? That like went in. And he was like, well, how did they clean out the Kaddish Kadashim? Like what happened to it if something happened to it? And so I got my answer here on this particular DAF, right? But the whole idea, I still don't understand how they could completely do their work. But the idea that you would sort of like, lower these workers, you know, in the, in these self-contained, um, you know, boxes, I guess, so that they could do the actual work itself. It, it's solving a very practical issue, which I think is one we don't often consider, right? Which was just the general maintenance of the Kaddish Kadoshim itself. And so then the Gemara goes on to say, right, but here, right, isn't, isn't it where there was no other way to act differently? In other words, you couldn't not renovate it, right? And it, without entering it, like, of course, somebody was going to have to go in um, occasionally. But then they say, right, become a coven. It might be that when one of those artisans goes in, they actually will have kavana to to benefit. Right. Like, and what would the benefit be that there they get to actually look at the Kaddish Kadoshim, the Asur. And it actually that should be prohibited. And that's why even though it was something that had to be done, they went to such great lengths because of the opportunity that maybe one of the workers there might actually misuse that opportunity and say like, okay, I'm actually going to benefit um, by actually, um, you know, by actually getting to look at the Kaddish Kadoshim itself. Um, so I, I'm going to hand this over to you because you're going to get on to the next section here. But I just thought this whole little section here of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai and the image of him teaching, you know, in the shade of the Heichal, um, and even this image of like how the workers actually did their work, I, I, I just love thinking about that. Of, and always when we learn these details of like how things actually functioned um, in the temple are, are always of great interest to me. I think it was also another way it's of great interest. How's that for a segue? Um, is that we are really, this stuff really explores further this question of Hana'a benefit right we talked about when it's abstract when it's subjective when is it simply a defined thing and in this case you know we're talking about what like the the feeling that a person might get which you know in the in the those workers right which is already quite abstract certainly subjective not necessarily every time you know do they even get to brag about it i assume that would be part of the bragging rights would be a in a in a bad way right and so it's interesting to me that this is where the Gemara is going, meaning from yesterday till today. Um, and, you know, that this is, listen, we found it interesting in many different ways. I think it is to, to, con to continue to explore what does it mean to get benefit and how, what counts as benefit. Um, I think it becomes important because there's so many cases where you wouldn't have a prohibition in the event of no benefit. Right. And, and I think, well, the continuation of the Gemara, 
you know, the idea yesterday, I was very stuck on like, I can't figure out what type of cases they would actually be talking about, but it all got revealed today. <laughs> the Gemara heard you. The Gemara um, heard me. Yep. Okay. So here we go. I'm on the, I don't know, somewhere in the middle of Amadalaf. Gufa Amarabi Shimon ben Pazi, Amarabi Yeshua ben Levi, Mishum Barkafa. Right. So this is who's talking about it. What are they talking about? Kol um, Right, the the sound of musical instruments in the Beit Hamikdash, and the sight of the Beit Hamikdash, and the smell of the incense in the Beit Hamikdash. None of these things is subject to the problem of miila. Miila meaning when you're going to come and misuse something that has been consecrated, and now you've desecrated by using it for its non-consecrated purpose. Then that's that's a violation of miila or mi'ilah, I guess, in, in Hebrew, modern Hebrew. So these more abstract senses, right, when you get, you know, you, you have the experience of hearing or seeing or smelling, according to this statement, it's, that may be the case, but it's still not a case of mi'ilah. V'reach ein bo mishum mi'ilah. So the Gemara says, one second, what about smell? Smell should have mishum mi'ilah because it has a thing. What's the thing that it has? The smell, right? There's something more concrete, not concrete, abstract, but the wafting smell is still something more definite than what your eyes or ears happen to see or hear. So the Gemara cites this brighter, which is we know that when you have incense, right, the, the practice of burning incense in the Beit HaMikdash is a, I think also its own really interesting topic. Um, and we're not going to be able to delve into it too much today, but hopefully over the course of the rest of Shas, we'll hit it at some point. Um, I would just note that the commentaries have different understandings of why why there was Ketorah burned ever to begin with, right? To what extent is this the smell just such a holy experience, transcendent kind of thing? And then the Rambam said something along the lines of, well, it's defumigation, right? Because when you're talking about the abattoir, aspect of the Beit HaMikdash, the slaughterhouse aspect of it, then having some ketorah to air it out uh, is not such a bad thing. And I, I'm not taking sides here. I'm just saying that the, the range of views on the ketorah are, are quite quite reaching. Um, but the, so this Brita says that somebody who is learning how to, how to make the, to smoke the ketorah, the incense um, in the Beit HaMikdash, or you're trying to transfer it to the community, there's several different things that you could do with the Ketoret that isn't just the actual service of the Ketoret. And in any of those cases, you're fine. You're exempt from any kind of problem of Me'ila, despite the fact that what you have done is, you know, used or enjoyed or whatever. This, you can't, you're not getting out of the smell. The smell is there, but you would be exempt from handling it in the incorrect way because I would say that perhaps there's a way to say there's leeway um, on the, you know, how far do you get to use it in the proper way? There's the mitzvah of smoking the ketorah on the mizbeach, and then there's all different kinds of preparations for that, which are not considered me'ila, even if they're not considered the mitzvah. But if your goal in smoking the incense in the Beit HaMikdash was to lahariachba, to in, to actually go to smell it, right, for the sense, for the reason of smelling it, for the niceness of the smell, then you would be obligated, you know, you'd yeah, the punishment and everything, which I believe is karate for me'ila, meaning it's a serious violation, a very serious violation. And of course, that line between when you're doing something to learn to learn how to do it or when you're doing to bring it to the community or whatever these kinds of things might be, then 
that's a very fine line between that and where you smell it for the sake of smelling it. You know, one sniff and you've been ma'al. You've done this this problem of me'ila. Right, so then the the Mishnah here, or the Gemara here, rather, on this Mishnah concludes that one who actually smells that Ketoret is going to be exempt from the Karet, right? But still, it's considered Me'ila. Meaning, when we're talking, why, why is this, right? Why would you be liable for a punishment? Well, it depends what your reason is for doing it. Here, he's really just smelling it because it's enjoyable, as opposed to doing something intentional to desecrate it. So the Gemara here says, well, you're, you're not going to get karate, but you're still going to be in, you still have done a violation of Mi'ila. Just we're not going to give you the big punishment that you would if you actually set out to, to do it wrong. And then, um, so I just want to also note that there's, I really appreciate the difference between the smell versus seeing and hearing. First of all, hearing, it would be, it feels so unfair to blame anybody for hearing when you know, that's always out of your control. Your ears hear whether or not you want them to because you have no way of closing them up, right? Eyes, you can close your eyes, but still what you get benefit from what you see, even if you, what you see is a beautiful vista, right? Or Yardena, if you might see Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai in the shade of the Beit Mikdash, like what we're talking about here is still something that is, you're not doing anything about it, right? You might happen to enjoy it, but it's over there. Whereas smell, once it comes your way, you know, smell, taste, touch, they're much more physical, even if smell is the least, least so of them. And now we have Rav Papa, who has a point about this. Again, hearing and seeing uh, do, not, do not ever con- constitute me'ila, this desecration thing. They don't have any, anything tangible to them. Right, so but smell, you know, once you have, once you have, um, you know, risen, uh, you right, instance is a smoky thing. The whole point of it is to smoke it. So once you have made the smoke of it go up, the pillars of it go up. Once you have this, I find it so so lovely. Once you have smoked the incense and you have made your pillars of smoke and. Now you have done the mitzvah of the ketoret, of the incense. You can't say that there's any desecration at that point because you've done the mitzvah. Meaning, and then if at that point you want to smell it for the sake of the smell, it seems to be, if, if I'm understanding Rav Papa correctly here, that, that you're okay. Because you've, once you've fulfilled the mitzvah, you get to enjoy the, the thing that made that mitzvah. Uh, you are not desecrating it. If anything, I would assume there's some kind of, you know, he do or benefit um what's the word like beautification of the fact that people are enjoying the fact that there are there's ketorah to the beta mikdash this last part i'm i'm not it's not in the gemara right i'm just in i'm just hypothesizing um because it does seem to me to be reasonable that that would be uh where this comes from you know the idea that there's no problem i i found this whole discussion very interesting because you could really see how you would just be sort of walking in Yerushalayim or next to the Beit HaMikdash and like smell the Ketoret. And I, it's very hard to not enjoy a pleasant smell if you smell it. <laughs> right. You know? Right. So I, I, I just, 
especially if it catches you unawares. Meaning not that you're the Kohen in the Beit HaMikdash doing the Torah and you have done it in an improper way, but as you say, like you're a passerby. Right, and you're just walking by and you smell it. And again, I also think it's interesting that the cases here are, you know, one that involves senses, right? Hearing the music or smelling, which do have a certain subjectivity to it. I mean, theoretically, the music and the smell was so beautiful. I think universally they would be, you know, experienced as, you know, something, you know, beautiful to, to hear or smell. But there is something about when you when you when you have an experience through a sense, there is something subjective about it. Yeah, yeah. I would add one thing, which is that I mean, I have another piece of Gemara to talk about, but but I would add one thing to this point, which is that I like that the Gemara recognizes that the halacha here recognizes that people can enjoy what they see and smell and hear and so on. And and I understand the problem of Meila that like you first to have that have to fulfill the mitzvah before we can talk about whether there's any personal enjoyment of this mitzvah. But the idea that there's, you know, musical instruments playing in the Beit HaMikdash and you're not supposed to have any personal enjoyment from that kind of like if that were the requirement kind of flies in the face of why would we have musical accompaniment to begin with, right? The whole idea is that we use these physical aspects of beauty to to glorify God, right? So meaning in our minds, because we are people who are physical creatures who appreciate the beauty and the beautiful sounds and the beautiful smells and so on. So I I feel like Ligmar is making a really important, you know, philosophical point. I would say it's an argument against it might be in favor of moderation, but it's also against asceticism that says like, oh, I'm not going to partake of any of the beauty. I'm not going to listen to anything. I'm going to stop up my ears. No, no, there's like you, you can't you can't desecrate the sound. The idea being that, of course, you can enjoy it. Right. Well, I think it also says something about human experience in the world, like what we experience through our senses is just us being in the world. Whereas, and I know you're going to talk a little bit more about the other cases, the other cases that are going to get discussed past this, right? You know, if you found a lost object and you can't lay it on a bed, it, it's just experiencing things through your body, right? Just you smell, you hear, you taste. It, it, that's just part of being human. And I don't think, I think there would be, it would be very difficult to go through the world to be like, well, you smelled it, but you weren't supposed to smell it and enjoy it. I, I mean, it's just not a realistic expectation that that's how people would experience things. Right, sure. And and again, we're talking about the Beit HaMikdash, right? We're not meaning it's a recognition of the humanity of humans, even in the context of this most spiritual thing that at the same time as it is the most spiritual, it also has all these very physical components that really are you know, tantalizing to each of the senses, maybe not taste, but, you know, for a passerby. Um, okay, what I want to talk about next is a really brief, you know, we, the Gemara the has several examples, but I'm going to talk about just one on, on Ahmed Bet, um, which is about shotness. Shotness, right, let's uh, just remember is the weaving together of wool and linen. Um, and it's a prohibition doraita. The prohibition is found in Masachet. Eh, oh my goodness! In Sefer Vayikra, um, the book of Leviticus, chapter nineteen, Tashma, Mochrei Ksut Mochrin Kedarkan. So when you sell a garment, 
clothing garments are clothing merchants are supposed to sell garments as they normally would. What does that mean? You sell a garment no matter the same way to Jews as to non-Jews. What are we talking about here? Clothing merchants, according to this Gemara, and I've seen it elsewhere as well, um, used to sell their wares, hawk their wares, not from a store, but because they would wear, I mean, I'm sorry, wear and wear, right? They would wear all their wares. They would, you know, walk around with all of the garments on them, right? And then they would, I guess, show people what they might have when they would encounter them. And what that means is that a clothing merchant who is selling to non-Jews as well as Jews might very well have uh, an item, a garment made of shatness, the, prohibi- the prohibited weaving of wool and linen on his back. And isn't that wearing, right? I just said wearing his wares. But the the Gemara seems to say, no, that's not really wearing. That's carrying, let's say. It's carrying perhaps in an unusual way. And we're using our, you know, words don't ever mean their words. But because if you're not wearing the clothing for your own benefit, but you're only wearing the clothing for the, as a means of transport, to tr- transport from one place to the next and then show it off to your customer, then that's not the same thing as getting benefit from the clothing in its nature as clothing. And then that's the point that the Gemara continues when it says, as long as you're not having intent in the, you know, you're not having intent to get benefit from it, either as protection from the sun or protection from the rain. And the moment you do have intent that you're, you know, that this shyness garment is going to help you out. Well, now you're wearing it as opposed to carrying it for transport. And then, then the Gemara says, all that being said, the modest people, the tznuim, right, meaning those who are really meticulous in their, their performance of mitzvot, so that they're not going to rely on this kind of allowance, a leniency with regard to carrying the shatness garments on your back. The tznuim, and I also, let's just note that they're called modest here. The word tsanua takes on a very different meaning than it's usually batted about in our modern era. Um, the tznuin would suspend, they would carry these wool and linen garments on a stick behind them so that there was no risk of them deciding that they're good, that, or, or feeling that they're getting the benefit, you know, as protection from sun or, or rain or whatever. And, and I appreciate that as well, because here we have, you know, the baseline halacha is that you're not going to have any problem if you, as long as you don't relate to the items as your own personal benefit, really you're only transporting for the sake of your customer. But, but... You know, as we say, it's subjective. And what if you're just, you want to be careful to make sure that you're fulfilling the mitzvah in the, you know, best possible way or the least risky possible way. Well, there were those indeed who made sure that they did not put the the garments of shatness on their bodies, not even for transport. And they would carry them on a stick behind them. And then they would still have them. They're allowed to sell them, right? They're not, it's not Asr Bahana in that way uh, that they can't do, that they can't do commerce with them, but they're not supposed to get personal benefit from it. So, so they make sure that they don't. And, and the Gemara allows for both um, ways of conduct, right? And again, I would say that this is another physical benefit, but in a different kind of way, I guess on your body, I'm not going to call it touch, right? It's not about, it's not literally about the five senses. It's about different kinds of benefits. And there are those who say, I will not even risk that kind of benefit. 
And there are those who aren't worried about risking it and, and might actually be in a greater risk. Both approaches are welcome here. Yeah, I mean, this whole discussion of different cases um, is very interesting. And the key line one in particularly is, I mean, I'm just struck by the fact that you're actually allowed to sell it to a non-Jew. Um, yes, I hear the question. Um, I'm trying to think if I have an answer. I, I think it's practical. In other words, that, you know, what are you going to do? You're selling in a market that has Jews and non-Jews. Um, but it's more interesting to me that someone owned it to begin with. I don't know. This, this is a whole other discussion and maybe we'll, we'll figure it out at another time. I just want to hop down to one last quick point on the DAP, uh, which is after this whole discussion about benefit and non-benefit, the Gemara goes back to the Mishnah um, and the piece of the Mishnah, you know, that says below Yasiko, right? That you can't even light an oven with chametz bread right? Even though it would be burning the bread itself, right? And that's a way to get rid of the, of the chametz, but you're not allowed to do that. And then the Gemara quotes the following, Tanu Rabbanan, right? We, with the sages taught us, Tanur Shehisiku Bekilpei Orla or Bekashin Shel Kilei HaKerem Chadash Yutat Yashan Yutsan, right? So let's say you have a oven and you decided to light it with peels of Orla fruit, right? Which we explained earlier, you're not allowed to use or from straw of, you know, grain that was planted in a vineyard with other uh, seeds. So it really ended up being key lime, right? It ended up being this sort of this mixing uh, in the vineyard. If it's a new oven, you actually have to shatter the oven. Um, and the idea is, is that somehow when you have a new oven, repeated heating of it or this heating of it actually sort of strengthens the oven, right? In other words, there's some um, improvement that happens with the oven the first time that you burn something in it. But if it was an old oven, you just have to cool it. And then you can go ahead and use it later. You just can't use it while it's hot from the heat that was produced from this Orla or from this Kelayim. Um, there was something about this price I was so struck by um, that it's like, it's harsh, like in the punishment, right? That here you would have, you know, it's not like, you know, you would have this brand new oven and if somehow, you know, you accidentally started this fire with it, you know, there's no tikkun for it, right? There's no way to fix it. It's that you actually have to destroy the oven itself because you improved it using something that you're not allowed to get any hana from. Um, so I, there was something about the harshness of this brisa that really stuck with me when I read it. I, you know, we like to think that everything in Torah is the light of Torah, um, which I guess it is technically all the light, but it's not all sweetness and light. I, I think it shows uh, how know. seriously they took this question of Hana. Like it wasn't a theoretical, you know, they're really, you know, all of these categories of things that are forbidden to us, they're really forbidden to us. And even to, you know, and to me, this was like the extreme of that. Well, all of these things for which were forbidden Hana'a, Anytime you're going to be forbidden Hana'a, the, the mitzvah um, in its more active form, right, is even a more stringent punishment, right? Karet, right? These are a lot of very extreme violations if you violate them. Chametz Bapesach, right? That's a big deal. Me'ila, big deal. Like, you know, Shatnis, these are, these are serious mitzvot. They're not Rabbanans. You know, there's no violation of a of a of hana on anything drabanan. 
Right. I No, I hear what you're saying about that. Um, but it's just, you're right. These are real Isurim and that's why it's taken so seriously. But I just, I don't know, right. like even figure out a way to fix the oven. But I think that's exactly your point. It's a zero. It's really serious when these things happen. And I think it's sometimes, you know, we're so, we live cushy lives, thank God. And it means that we, we have streamlined everything so that we don't have to kind of, we don't usually have to put ourselves out to this degree. Um, and I think so sometimes it kind of hits us in our face that this is the, this is the degree to which one is supposed to put oneself out, right? Like to be self-sacrificing to that, to, you know, as needed. Um, so I hope we don't have to, but it's good to remember that that's, that that's the parameter. Yes, I totally hear that. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Music.